This morning's scripture comes from the book of Psalms, chapter 46, beginning with verse 8. Come, behold the works of the Lord. See what desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I am exalted among the nations. I am exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Some of you have probably heard the phrase dead space. Um, That belongs to the jargon of Madison Avenue and Broadway and uh, Hollywood. Uh, It it refers to nothing happening, um, no imagery, no words, no motion. And in the entertainment world, you see, that's um, that's a primal void. That's uh, a voodoo curse. That's death itself. And along comes our psalmist and says, be still, and suggests that if you and I live without any dead space, we may be killing ourselves inch by busy, noisy inch. Be still. Who is this psalmist? If, if you read the entire psalm, th- this, this is a pilgrim of faith that hasn't been just spending all the time in the baby pool. He's been in the deeper end, okay? Um, he knows God is more than a vague abstraction or an idea. He, he knows God is a refuge, a strength in the world and life. And he says, be still. Maybe that's part of the source of the strength, vitality of his faith. Now, when we talk this morning about being still, are we talking about prayer? No. Meditation? No. This may be the beginning point of those practices. But we're talking about the simple, straightforward technique of stopping, doing nothing as much as possible for a definite period of time. Be still. Do you notice the verb? It's not an action verb. We love action verbs. We love the Nike thing, you know. Don't sit there. Just get up and do it. But sometimes the verb is not to do, but just to be. Be still, be quiet. You've heard that before. When's the first time you think you heard that? <laughs> yeah, it wasn't from the psalmist. It wasn't from a preacher. It's probably your mom. <laughs> Guess what? I heard that out in the hallway right out here a couple years ago. Nobody saw me hearing it or seeing it. And mother was very involved. Her son was just kind of banging off the walls, and he was a little out of control. She said, come over here, and here's the little steps here in front of the library. Now just sit still and be quiet. Sit still and be quiet. And smart mouth that he was, he turned to her and said, well, which one do you want me to do first? And she gave him that look, that look that you would think could injure, you know. I'm not going to be too hard on the little boy. He just didn't know. He was too young. To know that sitting still can be powerful stuff. We've talked about it last year here. Elijah had been running from Jezebel, and finally he sat still in the mouth of that cave. And um, he heard that still, still small voice he had been longing for. 
Oh, and Moses and all that locomotion sat down long enough, sat still on the mountaintop uh, till he brought down from the mountaintop something that still inspires. A woman named Rosa Parks sat quiet and still in the back of a bus in Alabama. Mahatma Gandhi sat down on the streets of Calcutta and they both ignited social change. I know a first grade teacher. Um, she arranges the room semicircular fashion. And, and when the children in her class get rancorous, out of bounds, noisy, she doesn't yell, she doesn't bang a ruler on her desk. She has this big oak chair, has no arms and no sides, and she goes and sits in that and crosses her legs, Native American style, just sits there. And within just a few moments, without her saying a word, that room is quiet as a baby's breath. This is powerful stuff we're talking about. Robert Fulgham, who wrote that book, Everything I Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten, said we could build a whole religious movement around sitting still. He said it would be easy to start, easy to maintain. You would need no buildings, no dues, no budgets, no potluck suppers, not even any preachers. All you'd have to do is just sit still for 15 minutes a day like your mother asked you. And every backyard swing, every park bench could become a sanctuary powerful stuff. Not just because it's about the need for rest, but it's what actually engenders more um, meaningful activity. Scott Peck, you know Scott Peck, the psychiatrist, writer. He became a Christian in his mid-40s. He all kind of accomplishments. He says, people are always coming up and saying, oh, Mr. Peck, um, how, how, given all your schedule, how, how are you, do you manage all the things that you do? And he says, here how, is how I answer. He says, I do all the things that I do because I spend at least an hour a day being good for nothing, doing nothing, okay? I don't know. Sometimes you look at us and we're a little more like the proverbial rock skipping across the water. We major on hurry, noise, and crowds. A man named David Cundance wrote a book that I recently read. It's called Stopping. And he says, if you listen to people, everybody's complaining about the harried, hectic pace of life. But instead of stopping, he said, here's what people do. Two things. First of all, cramming. <laughs> you know, people just try to respond to that by cramming more and more things and activities in the same limits of time and space and the same limits of energy. It's like suitcase cramming. You ever done that? You just keep shoving it in the suitcase. Sometimes you even sit on it and you're just about to bust the seams of the case. Cramming. He says the other thing is cutting out. That's what we tend to do. You know, we just try to exclude things so we can make room for the new demands. I won't tell you that doesn't work. Some years ago, I went to this course on time mag management, organizational skills. I felt pretty good. I thought I had really learned something, but here's what I learned. I learned some very nice ways to organize the old clutter so I could make room for what? The new clutter, yeah. We're busy, busy people. You know that question we're always asking ourselves and each other? Well, how you doing? How are you? How you doing? I read this recently. They say in China, the most polite answer to that question, how are you doing, is 
I'm very busy, thank you. In other words, I'm doing fine because I have more things to do than I can do, and that means I'm doing really well. Don't think that's just in China. I mean, we believe that successful people are busy people, religious people, spiritual people are busy people. How are you doing? Oh, I'm crazy busy, thank you. I'm really doing fine. I'm going to be confessional at this point. What we're talking about here this morning in terms of being still, that's not my natural bent, okay? <laughs> People that know me pretty well would say, Rob tends to be a person that likes to be in motion, okay? Yeah. And I love, you've heard me preach over the years, I love this, this pilgrimage kind of imagery, you know? This relentless stimulus and faith that says, go on, get up, keep moving, keep growing, keep serving. Do I believe in that? Yes. Do I believe in what we're trying to move into and talk about today? Yes. Look, I know when you look at the whole gospel, there's always this paradoxical balance. It's a faith of outward reach, but also inward reach. It's a faith that someday asked me to do more, but then at some moments it asked me to do less. I hope some of you are going to be honest right now. I think I'm going to be talking about some things today that can be hard for you to live into, and that's okay. I mean, there's some of you out there that you can, you can do five things at a time, and it's hard for you to find the capacity to sometimes just do nothing. Okay. Barbara Brown Taylor, in talking about this kind of theme, says, for some Christian people, this, th this kind of teaching, it, it's a bigger challenge than the practice of tithing or, or visiting someone on the death row, okay? So how do we start? For, for some of us, this maybe is not our natural bent. Start small, okay? I think sometimes we, in dealing with these disciplines, practices of faith, we try to take too big a leap. I had a friend that started small. Now, I know the man really well, and he was honest about himself. He would have said he was a sturdy disciple of the Protestant work ethic. He, he really kind of had to live out of this idea that so much of his worth hinged on his productivity. So he would come home in the evening, and that wouldn't stop. You know, he would have these books that he felt obligated to read, these projects that he needed to finish. It was hard for him to... To stop, but he said, enough is enough, and finally he said, this is what I'm going to do. He made this commitment. He said, every evening after supper, I will spend five, ten minutes stopping. <laughs> I'm going to go out on the back porch with a cup of decaf coffee, five, ten minutes. You see what he was doing? He was um, testing the notion that his, he was worth something more than what he produced. <laughs> it started working. He said within a few months to five, ten minutes easily became 30 minutes. And he looked forward not just to the cup of coffee, but he said to those moments where everything slowed down and I just, I love this phrase, he said, I tasted the evening coming on. Start small, some of you, that'd be a good place. Here's the other thing. Don't, don't miss the stopping places that are already there in the unfolding of your life. This poet named Robert Bly likes to talk about um, the pauses, the rest between the notes. 
He said it's in the pauses that the art resides. So let me talk about it. Give me an example. So you go and you drop off a package at FedEx, and then you get back in the car to go to your next appointment. You see, dropping the package and the appointment, those are the notes. Okay. We do those things well. It's the pauses. See. We don't think that really counts, or we just think this is just a moment for me to think about what I've just done and what I'm getting ready to do. But let the pauses count, you see. Lean into them. Notice them. Even driving a car could be the beginning of learning how to be still. Well, let's get back to the psalm. Be still and know. Know what? Know some things that you're never going to know if you don't step out of the traffic. Baron von Hugel, who always had something wise to say on most subjects, said, nothing of significance ever happened in a stampede. So we're talking about stepping out of the stampede long enough to know some things. I'm not talking about factual things or theoretical things. I'm talking about heart things. If we don't get still, we may never know that hope triumphs over experience. Dreams are stronger than facts. Those are important things. Until we be still, we, we may not know that um, the, the the human view of happiness is often fleeting, you know. Cars rust. The cat throws up a hairball on the new couch. <laughs> you know, when you slow down, you realize what lasts and what doesn't. And you say it's better to aim at the center of things. Speaking of the center, verse 4 in this psalm, the psalmist says, There is a river comes from where life itself comes from, and its streams bring gladness. He's not talking about those little rivulets that dry up in the summer heat. He's talking about that which gives lasting, abiding joy. Slow down, be still, and you'll know what's essential, what's not. Love the story, comes out of the Piedmont. It was this millwright who had a reputation. He had a gift for um, being able to hear when one of those looms was kind of out of sync and out of kilter before it actually broke down. And the plant manager was so impressed with his capacities, he just said, I'm going to follow this man around. I'm going to see the, the, the key to his, his capacities. And this is what he noticed. Every day while the rest of the folks were in the lunchroom eating lunch, he would get up 10 or 15 minutes before anybody would leave, and he would go back into the mill, and the looms would often still be whirring, but there was now the removal of all human chatter and clatter and movement. And, and the plant manager noticed this man. He would go, and he would just stand very still in the middle of the mill, and he would listen to every pitch and every camber and every cadence, and he knew which looms were getting out of balance. You get still, you see, and you, you can hear the... Um, you can hear the discordant sounds of life not being lived at the center. You can hear the grinding noise of dim hopes, false promises. How do you and I recalibrate our lives around values at last? Sometimes it begins. Join the psalmist. Be still. Be still and know. Be still and know that I am God. That's the real heart of this psalm.
Was he ta- is he talking about knowing God as a sovereign authority? Yes, but no, it, the language here is deeper than that. It's talking about knowing and being known by God. See? He talks about the God that brings peace to the world, that makes the war cease and can break the bow. And he says that very peace, that very power can find its way into the human heart until that God becomes refuge, strength right here, right now. Be still and know that. You see, everybody else is noisier than God. You know, the the billboards and the neon lights, um, the headlines. They announce human works. God has no public relation agency. God uh, undergoes no um, campaign of publicity. God only invites us to listen, to look, be still. Be still long enough to see that God is more than idea, more than concept. God becomes a living connection, becomes our refuge our strength. Have you ever tried to live out of faith without that connection? See, that's more than belief. That's more than idea. Um, that, that kind of faith is hard to maintain without, it can sustain. I know some of you out here this morning, some of you are just capable, able gardeners, and this is a great time of year because now this time of summer, a lot of those, those flowers, they're, um, they're thick and they're ready. And I know what you've done at times. You've gone and you've picked some of them and you took them inside and you went down into the basement and you rummaged up some, some old clay pots and you threw the flowers in there. Well, you didn't have time to put in water. You put them in there and you came in the next morning and those flowers had gone to the great flower bed in the sky. Uh, wilted. Sticky with death. Elton Trueblood used to talk about cut flower Christians. Oh, they talk about the beauty, the joy of faith, but then here they are, the rock just skip, skip, skipping across the water, and that deep connection is gone. And you wake up one morning, and it's all wilted. It's just dried up. Be still. Be still and know that God is a God that's our day-to-day, right-now refuge, strength, a connection. I don't know where this finds you this morning. I I, I have the hunch that some of you, like me, well, you you just tend to find that all the calls and the demands and the complexities of life, they just seem to, do you ever feel like they're just increased year after year, you know? Always more to do and more to be. But every day is just the same 24 hours. Every year is just the same 12 months. And whether it's true or not, the sense is that the activity is increasing, but the energy and the time we have to deal with that activity, well, it just remains the same. So you become one of those persons that joins the chorus. I can't deal with this. It's too much. And the psalmist comes along with a counterintuitive word. He doesn't say, come on, just do it. Get up and try a little harder. He says, no. For a few moments, be good for nothing. Okay. Don't do more. 
Just do less. So that you can get your perspective back. You can know what's important and what's not. More importantly, your soul can catch up with your body. Most importantly, the God who has been looking for you all along just might find you. Well, I'm going to close with this image. I just shared an image from the floral kingdom. Now I'm going to go to the cat kingdom. It was about a former cat of ours. It was a really good cat. His name was Mr. Tom. And this was something we would notice in the wintertime. Um, you know how it is in the wintertime. The af- afternoon pushes headlong into the evening, and there it is, that sun clipping across the, the icy sky, turning westward and thrusting its fingers into a living room, our living room. And that's when Mr. Tom had come into the story. Wherever he had been during the day, Now he's going to emerge. He's going to come out into the living room. What do you think he's going to do? He's going to sprawl out there in one of those patches of sunlight that was on the floor or that was on the uh, piece of furniture. Oh, my goodness. I I would look at him. It was a picture of utter contentment, of almost boneless stillness, spread out um, for all the world like one of those jugs and jars under the prairie sky, um, catching rain after a summer drought. And I would look at Mr. Tom, and I just got the feeling that he was emptying himself at the same time he was filling himself. He would sleep a little bit, utter contentment, boneless stillness. But it wouldn't last for long. It was a cat nap. You see, this was wintertime. The spell of those fingers of sunlight coming in, they, they were, they were going to be brief. But for just a moment, oh, the sunlight for Mr. Tom. Oasis, heaven moon, pure grace. That's the image I think of when I think about God inviting us to be still. Patches of sunlight coming through the window on a winter day. Small yet ample chunks of space, narrow yet full segments of time. And after a brief stint in the sun, you get up a little lighter, a little steadier, a little stronger than before to go on living as God has called us to live. You hear what this psalmist is inviting us to do? This is an invitation to one and at the same time to empty yourself, be good for nothing, and to also find yourself being filled. Be still. And know that I'm God. Be still and know. Be still. Be.